Ajahn Chah said to him, oh, Sumato, you must be confused. And he didn't give a particular reason why he thought he would be confused straight away. And so Lumpur Sumato asked, so uh, why is that Lumpur? And he said, well, the Dhamma is all about letting go and the Vinaya is all about holding on. Our Vinaya discipline, the monastic rule and the conventions that we live by. So the Dhamma is all about letting go uh, the Vinaya is all about holding on, doing this, not doing that, and following the, the conventions and structures. So that, mu- so that must be confusing. And he said, yes, come to think of it, it is. <laughs> it is confusing. <laughs> and then as uh, Lumpur Sumedha talked about um, that incident, then uh, at the time he felt that, that uh, Ajahn Chah was going to launch into some kind of ex- extensive uh, explanation and uh, the description of how those things, uh, they, how they worked together, how they, they were both part of uh, our lives. And, but he simply said, when you figure out how those work together, then uh, you'll be fine. That was it. <laughs> when you figure out how those work together, you'll be fine. So it's, it's not something easy to explain, but um, it's something to explore and get a, a feeling for you know, how these, uh, these different principles work. The, uh, uh, the principle of, uh, of Dhamma, of uh, the uh, transcendent reality, the fundamental and uh, transcendent ultimate reality of things, and then also the, the structures and conventions, the forms that we live with. You know, how, how do they work together? How can they support each other? So it's one of the... Um, the issues with the, pretty much every single religious institution uh, around the world, um, this uh, habituation that uh, occurs to the customs, the forms, the structures. Within our Theravada Buddhism, we have our own particular patterns of doing things like, doing things like chanting the Namotasa before a Dhamma talk, or the way that we bow, uh, the way we wear our robes, um, the, the form of a, a, the temple, the shrine, the positioning of the Buddha image, um, the, uh, uh, these standard forms that, that we're very used to, but every religious tradition around the world uh, has similar structures in a Christian church or an Anglican church or a Catholic church, and they have uh, their own structures in, the, in, a, in a mosque, in a synagogue, in a gurdwara, in a Hindu temple, in uh, uh, the um, say Native American traditions, the African spiritual traditions in Australia, the tribal traditions uh, all around the world. Every society has its own structures and forms and religious observances. And I would say that uh, it's a bit of a sweeping statement, but I would say the, uh, uh, the issue of getting habituated, going on to uh, sort of a an automatic pilot with respect to the traditions and customs and forms is something that, that we find uh, everywhere around the planet, every society, every, uh, every community, every group, whereby some, some form like um, baptizing or bowing or bathing in the river Ganges or um, recitation of certain scriptures and the sound of particular words and forms, they're taken as having intrinsic value or meaning uh, and that they are, this is particularly good or this is particularly bad or this is right, this is wrong, this is how it should be done, this is how it shouldn't be done. 
So uh, every, uh, uh, every religious form uh, around the world, what happens, uh, I would say, people who are part of a religious tradition, you get habituated that you, uh, you've been bowing so many times that your body is bowing, that your mind is, is off uh, at, uh, at Tesco's or Waitrose or, <laughs> or planning your, your holiday next, uh, next week or re- recollecting the, the argument you had at lunchtime. Yeah, we, uh, we go through the motions very, very easily, uh, carrying out uh, ceremonies, chanting, uh, the, you know, when you are reciting the Namotasa. Again, I'm not reading anybody's mind, but how easy it is as your, your mouth is reciting the Namotasa, then again, you're off at Waitrose or Aldi or, <laughs> or uh, you know, planning the, uh, the, the evening ahead. Or, or uh, just thinking about somebody else in the community, or someone in your family. So that um, the, the the say the theme for this this talk, breathing spirit into form, is uh, looking at these forms that we use. Say particularly within Theravada Buddhism, of course, because that's what we that's kind of what we we, we do here. <laughs> that's our thing. <laughs> uh, the forest tradition of uh, Theravada. Um, the uh, monastic uh, customs and discipline and forms that we that we use. But how do we breathe spirit into that? How do we make them uh, really alive and useful? How do we we work with that habituation process? That kind of uh, uh, tendency to go onto automatic pilot, whereby we we uh, well, there's kind of two ex- there's two extremes that the, the Buddha outlined that we fall into. One is where um, we, uh, we, we sort of switch off and don't even notice that we're following a particular form as you're, you know, you're uh, performing the, the Mass in a Catholic church or you're, or you're reciting the, the monastic rule in a Theravada monastery or you're, or, or you're uh, reciting prayers in a synagogue and, or a, a, a Gurdwara. You're going to switch off and you're somewhere else altogether. Or the other extreme is this is absolutely important. This is totally real. This is completely sacred. This is, you know, this is totally uh, significant. And you know, if the if the water doesn't touch the head of the baby in the baptism, then the child is not saved or not not fully and properly baptized and is not therefore uh, guaranteed a place in in heaven and such like. I'm not I'm not trying to make fun of any particular religious tradition, but just. How we 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 veer to these towards these two extremes. Either um, the the form is absolutely real and meaningful, and and uh, is a hundred percent sort of true and valid, just the you know, the form on its own, or uh, the the form is so familiar that we we don't even really notice that we we're using it. So uh, when the Buddha was speaking to uh, Venerable Mahakachana. Uh, in one of the most significant teachings in the Pali Canon, in the, um, the Sangyutta, the Connected Discourses, um, uh, this uh, teaching to Mahakachana, he said, the, the belief, the view that everything is real, everything exists, that's one extreme. The view that nothing exists, nothing is, nothing is real, that's the other extreme. And by adhering to these two extremes, then uh, we create uh, we create suffer, uh, suffering and confusion. Uh, and the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle way, 
And what is that middle way? It's with ignorance as condition that formations come to be, and with formations as condition, uh, consciousness. And he ex- he ex- explains the whole of the uh, pattern of dependent origination. So uh, that uh, in, in considering this area, this looking at religious forms and how to use them, I think it's helpful to to, to uh, look at these in, look at it in terms of these two extremes we tend to follow. Either yes, this is how you should bow, and if you don't bow like that, that's wrong. <laughs> this is how you pronounce the namotasa, and if you don't do it that way, that's wrong. You should always recite the namotasa first, and if you don't, that's bad. Uh, so. That's one extreme, is that this is absolutely real and, and significant and important, or that it doesn't matter at all, it's insignificant, or you're just uh, completely so habituated, so used to it, you don't even don't even notice it. So those are the, that I would say, if I, would offer, I would suggest, I would offer for consideration that those are the, the two extremes that people tend to fall into. So the... Um, uh, one of the insights that the, the Buddha had before his enlightenment was about this area. And there's this very significant passage where, uh, in the dialogue he has with, with a, uh, uh, a spiritual teacher called Sachika, a, a pundit called Sachika in the, the Maha Sachika Sutta, the, the greater, the longer discourse to, to Sachika. And he's talking about his own career, his own spiritual path. And uh, running up to the time when he, he left his companions and went off to discover the middle way, he had this insight into religious forms. And uh, he, at uh, this time, was a very, very ardent ascetic. He was uh, very, very hard on himself to the, to the extent that you know, he was uh, uh, almost starving through emaciation and, and uh, eating so little food. He said he could touch the skin of his stomach and he could feel his backbone. He was so skinny. Um, and he would just sometimes just black uh, black out, pass out because of and dizziness and and uh, uh, the uh, uh, say weakness because of, of starvation and self deprivation and, and self torture. And up to that point, he'd had the opinion that that the more uh, the more painful it is, the more that you're purifying yourself. The more difficult, the more the austerity is, then the closer you are to enlightenment. That that. That experience of, of pain and difficulty was in its in and of itself purifying. So it was uh, uh, during that time he had this insight. So these images appeared to him. Uh, it was about how to how to light a fire, and uh, he said, um, "If you uh, the, these images appeared spontaneously in, in in his mind before his enlightenment when he was a, a bodhisattva." And he said, uh, "So if you have a, a, a wet, uh, a wet piece of uh, a piece of green wood that's, that's full of sap, and it's lying in water, and you, you fish it out of the water, and you try to light a, a fire with it, um, then uh, and if you're you know, rubbing two sticks together, what they call an up, with an up, upper fire stick and a lower and, and the log as a lower fire stick, and that's the way you you start wood by uh, rubbing sticks together." He said, um, uh, would you be able to, to start a fire with it? And he realized, no, you wouldn't because it's a, it's a wet, sappy piece of wood and it's lying in water. So no matter how hard you tried, whether or not you experienced painful, racking feelings due to striving, then you wouldn't be able to start light a fire with it. Uh, if uh, you had a 
to cut a long story short, <laughs> the, the, there was a few similes that came to his mind. That if you have it, uh, a dry piece of wood away from water, and you you um, uh, you use a, an upper fire stick to you know, to 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 drill uh, to, to drill it and to to raise heat, would you be able to start a fire with it? And he realized, well, you would because it's a, it's a a sapless piece of wood. It's away from water. It's dry, and so. Um, you would be able to start a fire with it, whether or not you experienced painful, racking feelings due to the striving. So he had this insight that doesn't uh, the, the the difficulty or the painfulness of the effort is not the thing that's purifying. What matters is the dryness of the wood <laughs> and the, the the readiness of the the combustibility of the wood. That's what matters. And so he realized. It's nothing to do, spiritual development and realization, it isn't anything to do with experiencing pain. It's, uh, it's to do with the conditions of the, the mind and the, the attitude that's present. And he realized what really matters is the quality of purity of heart. Um, that, and so whether, you're, uh, whether it's painful and difficult or whether it's easy and comfortable, uh, that, that's beside the point. The, the, what really matters is that there is a, a heart that's free of greed, hatred, and delusion. There's a wholesome intention, and the effort to to, to light the fire is being done in the appropriate way. Right? You're know, rubbing the, the the small stick into the, the notch on top of the, the the lower stick, and that's that's how you would get smoke and start a fire. So that was a, a big insight for him. It's like. Uh, I've been putting all this effort to, over the idea that more pain is somehow liberating, more tapas, more austerity. But that, I've got that wrong. That's just not. That's just not the way it works. And so he had the courage uh, and the uh, initiative to let go of this whole system of practice that he'd followed for the previous six years and was sort of generally assumed. Uh, way to do things in his time and to go his own way to, to trust his, his intuition to trust those images of the how to light a fire and he realized yeah my my uh, uh, my my intentions are pure my my heart is is in a, a pure state i have uh, a lot of um say wholesome qualities here and i'm ready to make the the effort and so I'll, I'll stop focusing on trying to create more pain and consider the pain to be somehow automatically, uh, intrinsically liberating. So that was the form that he was, he, he had fo- was following, was that more pain equals <laughs> closer to, closer to uh, enlightenment. And he decided, no, that's, uh, I'm just believing in that blindly. And that this insight that he had showed that that, that wasn't really the case. So he had the courage to go his own way, and then he also realized, I'm so emaciated, I'm so exhausted, I'm so, I'm, I'm so uh, say, starved, that uh, I can't possibly sustain effort in a, in, a, in a continuous and helpful way. So that's why he accepted the, the um, rice, uh, rice gruel from uh, Sujata and uh, ate some food and, and began to build up his strength. His companions thought he'd given up the path and had lost his way because he was eating ordinary food and thought, oh, we're on three rice we were on three rice grains a day, you know, what are you doing eating a whole bowl of porridge, you know, shameless, indulgent monk. Uh, but the the Buddha trusted his own intuition and, and was ready to receive the criticism or the, the, the negative impressions of his companions. And then that led to his discovery of the middle way and then to his full enlightenment. 
So that, that's a readiness to question the, the forms and structures and to, to be guided by, by intuition. I would say that's, a, that's a, an, a very good example, a perfect example of breathing spirit into the, the form, that uh, there was that questioning attitude and the readiness to, to go against uh, habitual uh, beliefs and to, to be guided by experience. Also, considering this theme, I was remembering how um, when I, I first uh, showed up at, uh, at the International Forest Monastery in January of 1978, I had very, very little experience of Buddhism. Uh, I'd never read a Buddhist book. Uh, I'd read lots of other spiritual books, all sorts of different, uh, uh, from the, the, the uh, Hindu tradition or from the Taoist uh, or uh, tradition from from Sufism, from Christianity, mystical Christianity, and uh, uh, various different um, uh, shamanic texts and, and such like. I read all sorts of different things, but very very little uh, on Buddhism, uh, if if at all. I think the only the only kind of Buddhist book that I'd ever read was called The Zen of Seeing by Frederick Frank, which was more about about uh, drawing than about Zen per se. And I'd been on one weekend of teachings with a, a Tibetan Buddhist master, His Holiness Dujum Rinpoche, um, when I was a student. A, a friend of mine who was into Tibetan Buddhism was a, from a, a college uh, in London and sort of was very enthusiastic about this great lama coming to London and give teachings. And so he said, you've got to come and come. This great lama is coming to, to London. You know, it's a great opportunity. But um, it, uh, I must confess, with all due respect to the great lama, that it went completely over my head. <laughs> But uh, the only thing I can remember um, of anything the, from that weekend was that I, I was impressed by how the people seemed to sit up really straight and looked uh, uh, and sat very, very still for long periods of time. And I thought, wow, that's impressive <laughs> that the kind of the, the students were, were, were sitting upright and sitting still for a long time. And uh, I couldn't do that at that time. And the the other only thing, the only other thing that really impressed itself on me was queuing up for a long, long time to see this terama, this this treasure that uh, the uh, Rinpoche was was um, showing to each person as a kind of empowerment, which was a a small clay uh, Buddha image that was supposed to have been made by Padmasambhava with, from clay from the Naga realm. So it was in this little reliquary, and he would open up the door, and each person could see it for a couple of seconds, and then. And that's all I remember. Actually, Buddhism, uh, what the Buddha taught, I don't remember a word. <laughs> None of that stuck. But I remember the little clay image, and I remember people sitting up straight and being bright, sort of bright-eyed and peaceful. So I knew virtually nothing about Buddhism when I walked into Wat Pananachat. And um, uh, within a day or so, I had a very strong feeling that this was exactly the kind of thing that I was looking for. Um, with the, the 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 way of life in the in the forest monastery and the focus on meditation uh, and the the kind of um, down to earth quality of of the life and the the simplicity and straightforwardness of both the, the monks and novices there and the, the villagers that really appealed to me. So within a couple of days, I realised I had the strong intuition I'm going to be here for a long time. Uh, this definitely feels like a shoe that fits. And because uh, I, I had just finished a degree in psychology and physiology at London University, and uh, I decided to study psychology to understand my mind, 
a bit better. But after three years of academic psychology, again, with all due respect to my revered teachers, I was not a lot happier than I was. <laughs> I didn't understand myself much, uh, much better than when I started out. As a, I was a confused 21-year-old rather than a confused 18-year-old. So, uh, <clears throat> so the, no disrespect to my teachers, but... Uh, but I could see in the monastery that this was something that was uh, really appealing. So uh, at that time I had a, an interesting insight um, because I could feel that, oh, this really uh, seems to be the, the, exactly the thing I'm looking for. So right now I know nothing about Buddhism. And I'd noticed how when you went to a new school or a new institution or you met a new group of people, you went to a new country, at first you know nothing, you don't know the place, you don't know the people, you don't know where anything is. And then over a little while you get uh, attuned to uh, the, the place where you are, the people you're with, and the value system of the people there. And, so, and then within a, a while suddenly you know, you've, you've acquired that value system. And so this very clear thought appeared in my mind, despite being a confused 21-year-old. <laughs> it was like, okay, now you're, you're entering into this, so you know nothing. So remember, right now, you, you don't know anything about Buddhism, you don't know anything about the Buddha's teaching, um, you don't know these people, you don't know anything at all. It's a blank slate. Now, watch a world arise, because... Before too long, if this follows the same pattern as when you went to a new school or to a new college or you're going on holiday someplace, it's going to be exactly the same. You will acquire that same value system that, uh, that doesn't exist in your mind yet, but uh, uh, watch and see what happens. And that was, I, I don't know why that appeared in my mind so clearly and strongly, but it was very, very valuable because six months later, then of course I knew this is a really good Ajahn, that's not such a good Ajahn. This is a really good monastery, that's an awful monastery. This is how you should bow, and this is how you, should, you shouldn't bow, this is how you should chant. And, and, the, and then in the back there was that six months ago, I'd never even heard of Theravada Buddhism or Mahayana Buddhism. I'd never heard of Ajahn Chah or Ajahn Mahabur or Ajahn Tate. Or none of that. I hadn't heard their names. I knew nothing. And so it was very helpful to have that clear, conscious recognition of this is a world that has arisen. This is a value system that has been uh, acquired. And so that in terms of the theme for the day, breathing spirit into form, it was... Uh, like, it was helpful to remember this is an acquired system. This is not, these are not absolute truths. The mind is giving these things value. But six months ago, you knew nothing of this. This was like all completely fresh to you. So that was, that was a very, uh, very uh, important, significant way of keeping a perspective on all those forms. Because I wanted to do things right and be a good, a good anagarika, a good novice, a good monk, and do everything properly, um, and yeah, and not be a you know bad monk or do you know do things badly or in a, in a casual way. But I could see how the mind is is trying to make these things absolutely true, absolutely real, absolutely solid, and 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 yet say well six months ago you know I knew nothing about this. I've often mentioned how uh, I think I was an, uh, an anagarika and we were cleaning the shrine the day before the moon day, and I said to the one of the novices I was cleaning the shrine with, I said, "It's funny, all these Buddha images look Indian." He said, "Why is that funny?" And I said, "Well, he's from China." Yeah. This novice said, "What?" He said, "Yeah, the Buddha was Chinese. I don't know why they make the Buddha images look 
look Indian. And the, <clears throat> the Buddha was not Chinese. He, he was born in, Nep in what is now Nepal. And I said, no, no, everyone knows the Buddha was from China. Of course, I was ready to be an authority, even though I, I basically knew nothing. But uh, so that I really didn't know anything. Um, but uh, I, I still use that recollection of, uh, of uh, that um, having uh, had a blank slate to start off with and seeing how this, all these certainties and ideas and how you do it, how you don't do it, what's right, what's wrong, uh, you know, arose on that, uh, out of that, that, uh, that empty uh, place. So in terms of uh, religious forms that we use, uh, there are many and various things, so like the chanting, bowing, uh, the, uh, the, the way that things are done in this particular tradition. Uh, also meditation practices, what is a, what's a, uh, an appropriate kind of meditation, what's not appropriate, what, is this, what belongs to this tradition, what is outside of this tradition. Um, uh, these are all things that we can get habituated to. We can get, uh, as I was saying, you can get so used to, to chanting and bowing that uh, even though we have a, uh, a training that whenever you come into a room with a shrine, you should bow three times uh, before you you know, go about you know, your business, whatever you're going to do. If you come into your room as a shrine, you bow three times before you leave, you bow three times before you leave. You can very easily be you know, bowing properly, properly, <laughs> have your mind somewhere else altogether. You know, you're, uh, you're already thinking about the talk you've got to give in the, in the temple while you're bowing in your kuti. <laughs> So that uh, we can get habituated uh, very easily, bowing, chanting, meditation practices, listening to Dhamma talks. <laughs> it's very easy to, to heard so many Dhamma talks you sat, you sat down to. When you start out, it's like, wow, this is really amazing. This is all so new. This is so interesting. And then six months or a year later, you sit down, close your eyes, Namo Tassa Bhagavato. And we just somehow, somehow we go off somewhere and we're still managing to sit you know, vaguely upright and then uh, A1 at the end of the talk and oh, right. A1 sa tu sa tu sa tu. And uh, Lumpo Cha talks about the same kind of uh, process whereby you don't even realize the talk is coming to an end, but something in you picks up the, the change of the tone of voice or some kind of phrase that says, That's enough for today. And then, okay. Sa <laughs> tu. So this is where the, the, the form has not had spirit breathed into it. <laughs> I'm not judging anyone. I'm trying to make fun of anybody uh, who's... Uh, but the, I've been there myself many, many times. Many, 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 many times. So um, then also the beliefs and attitudes, Theravada Buddhism, uh, why the Theravada Buddhism is good and how it's different from Vajrayana or Mahayana or or how it's different from Christianity or from Islam or Judaism or theistic religions or Vedanta and so that our beliefs and our attitudes and also our identity you know we can say I, I am a Buddhist or you know I am a Theravadan or I am English you know that uh, this is I'm an English Buddhist I'm a British Buddhist that's what I am so we can uh, take religious forms and, and build an identity around all of those and uh, it, it's, it should be said that for Westerners, again, it's a bit of a sweeping statement, but there is a small advantage for Westerners coming into Buddhism because most of us didn't have parents who were Buddhists or families that were 
were, were Buddhists. Um, I, I do have a, my, my second cousin was I.B. Horner, who was a very eminent Buddhist scholar, but I didn't know she existed until I was already a monk. So she didn't have any, people often think, oh, obviously you became a bhikkhu because of your, your sainted aunt, I.B. Horner. And I said, no, I didn't even know she existed until I was already a monk when I found that she existed. I saw her name on the back of the Vinaya books, uh, the translations of the Vinaya books, and I thought, oh, I wonder if that's a relative. Ha, ha, ha. And it was. <laughs> her father and my grandfather were brothers. So, amazingly enough. But uh, she had no influence on my, my, my life. So for many Westerners, we've come into Buddhism because of our own interest, and so we're not sort of conditioned. We haven't inherited a whole lot of customs and rituals and superstitions and and things from our, our families. So there's a, a small advantage, I would say, for Westerners coming into Buddhism because we don't have that kind of automatic belief in like um, the effects of past karma or um, the influence of, of uh, other realms, of uh, beings in other realms, and, and, uh, or, or the, the biases that uh, we've grown up with from, from if you come from a, an Asian family with, with a long history of connections with Buddhism and Buddhist traditions and customs and forms. So I would say that Westerners have a small advantage, but we have a, a disadvantage, <laughs> the other side of the same coin, in that we can be very attached to our our, um, uh, say, uh, that, um, uh, so that the position of, you know, I'm free of attachments. I, I, you know, I haven't grown up in the Buddhist culture. I'm free of any kind of cultural conditioning. You know, I'm not influenced by any of that, those eight, quote unquote, Asian trappings, you know, you know uh, so that we can be attached to our opinions uh, and particularly attached to our idea that we're not attached if you can follow that. <laughs> I'm a Westerner, I'm not attached to any of that. So, but in fact, you are, you're attached to what um, Ajahn Jayasura once referred to as an irrational disbelief. An irrational disbelief in uh, past life, calm, you know, past lives and future lives and the influence of, of, uh, of the, uh, the, the uh, remote a actions on the present experience, or uh, uh, the the future the future results of of our actions today. So we can, as Westerners, we can be we can think that we're unattached, but our, our lack of a, what we think of as our lack of attachment can be actually an attachment to our skepticism, and our and we have our own sets of of really, uh, beliefs and, and rituals and customs and forms. Um, that, that we are very attached to. So uh, I've lived most of my life as a monk in the, in the West, so I've had quite a lot of contact with, with Western, Westerners and Western Buddhists. And, and it, it is quite interesting how that they, there's a sort of dismissal, a kind of a, a, a pushing away, a vibhava tanha, a, a sort of desire to get rid of you know, Asian customs and forms and traditions, but without noticing that there's a whole crowd of Western <laughs> customs and forms and traditions that we're, we're equally attached to, like uh, having you know, publishing books with your name on or um, attaching to particular forms of meditation practice, um, attaching to your opinions about there's no past lives, no future lives. I was just uh, thinking one, one of our, our good friends in the, in the USA who was a, 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 a Dhamma teacher for many, many years who just passed away recently and uh, 
I remember having a, a, a dialogue with him and some of the other teachers when I was living in, in America, and he said, you don't really believe in all of that past life, future life stuff, do you? I mean, you don't re- do you really believe in all of that? Do you think that has any validity at all? I mean, you can't. I mean, you're a, you're a, you are a scientist. You can't, you can't really believe in all of that. So since he, uh, I must confess, again, with all due respect, he passed away about a week, uh, a week or two ago. I thought, I wonder if he's having some interesting experiences right, <laughs> right now. He might be listening to this Dhamma talk. I won't mention any names, but uh, the, <clears throat> I did cross my mind. Oh, he's, I wonder if he's having some very uh, illuminating experiences uh, that uh, passing through different, uh, different states of being. So we uh, and you know we can be uh, so the the downside of being Western uh, kind of skeptical materialist kind of Buddhism is that we can not notice the attachments that we have to the, the forms that we we adhere to. Uh, and again, refle- reflecting on this um, this theme for today, I was reminded of a, again mentioning no names. <laughs> there was an Anagarika here many many years ago who came out of a sort of hippie anarchist background and he was very uh, anti-authoritarian and very sort of wary of any kind of structures and forms, any kind of limitation. He, he wanted to, to meditate and he saw the value of, of spiritual practice, but he was extremely wary of any kind of uh, forms and structures and, uh, and any kind of um, for, uh, uh, the sort of traditions and... Um, the sort of inherited uh, models uh, of, uh, of Buddhism and meditation and, and, and Buddhist ideas. Um, so, and I had got a lot of respect for that. There's a kind of view very much liking the teachings of Krishnamurti and the sort of um, uh, spiritual teachers that, that sort of eschew the, the um, structures and forms and such like. But uh, at the same time, he was completely addicted to Radio 4. And as uh, as monastics, we're not supposed to listen to the radio or watch TV. In, uh, that, just in case anyone's any any doubt, we shouldn't be listening to the radio, shouldn't be watching TV. And he could not give up listening to Radio Four, and he had all these kind of great arguments about why listening to the radio and Radio Four was somehow different, and it wasn't entertainment. And uh, and so I thought, well, you're an anarchist, you know, you're a hippie. Why Radio 4? I mean, that's kind of absolutely, that's more middle of the road than the white lines, you know. But he, he was completely uh, uh, immovable. He was not going to give up listening to Radio 4. That was uh, unshakable. So I tried to point out, well, this is just another kind of social structure, social form, of, you know, uh, an attachment that needs to be let go of, but nope. That was in the, the, the days when you turned uh, turned the radio on with a dial. So, uh, in terms of breathing spirit into form, um, then it's not just religious forms. I would say it's also social forms. Our relationships, the way we relate to our working life, um, what we give value to, our status, you know, whether you're making a big thing of being a teacher or a doctor or a parent, uh, attached to particular roles, attached to the radio or... <laughs> Or that uh, your your reputation, uh, or it can be attached to your bad reputation. You know, do you feel I'm a failure? I haven't done anything with my life. I'm, a, I'm, a, I've wasted my years. So that it's not just uh, religious forms that can be benefited by having spirit breathed into them. I would say, but also social forms. Our, you know, again, our relationships, our work, the place we live, the 
the things we, we do, the things we have done, that we, we can again either sort of um, give them a, an inflated value and see them as absolutely important. I am a doctor, I am a parent, I am, I am, I am a mother, I am a father. You know, I did write that book. You know, I am on the BBC. Uh, that that uh, the way the extreme of of uh, substantiality and uh, uh, everything exists, and also the uh, just switching off, going going through the motions of the just eating the food that we eat, calling it good, calling it bad, wearing the clothes that we we think of as being right and good without ever considering well, why do I call this good? Why do I why do I think of this as right or beautiful, appropriate? And why do I think of that as wrong? So in terms of breathing spirit into these forms, whether it's religious forms or social forms, then uh, I'd say there's, there's, there's three essential elements. The first is uh, mindfulness or heedfulness. Uh, the, when uh, Lumpur Sumedho established Amravati, there was a, a particular verse from the Dhammapada that he, he would quote very often as a kind of motto of Amravati, which is, uh, heedfulness or mindfulness is the path to the deathless, heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die, the, the heedless are as if dead already. That's Dhammapada verses 20 and 21, I think. Um, and so Amravati meaning the deathless realm, <laughs> then uh, this... That uh, an upamada is a heedfulness, which is a kind of comprehensive mindfulness, or a mindfulness that's fully attuned with, with wisdom. So paying attention, first of all, to breathe spirit into form, to help uh, not get lost in either of those extremes, then paying attention, not really noticing what is the way I'm relating to this. Why, why do I call this valuable? Why, why am I just switching off or not noticing that. I use this, these forms all the time. Am I noticing what I'm doing? Am I noticing I'm putting on my robe? Am I noticing that I'm bowing or chanting? Uh, am I noticing how I relate to meditation practice? What am I doing? What's going on? What, what is here? So, upamada, mindfulness or heedfulness, that's sort of the, <laughs> the, the, the key. And then the second one, uh, the second element, is that of wise reflection, which is kind of an extension of that heedfulness, that readiness to, to dig into things like, well, why do I call that valuable? Or I, I, I follow these patterns, I keep these rules, and we recite all these rules every, uh, every fortnight. Uh, what, what do they mean? Why do I do this? What's, what's, it, what's this for? Why do I call this important? And why is this valuable? What's, uh, what's the purpose of this? So that quality of wise reflection, uh, or yoniso manasikara in uh, Pali, or also dhamma vijaya, the investigation of reality. And then the, the third one, I would say, is then challenging those assumptions, challenging those beliefs and attitudes, so that not just noticing or questioning you know, what are the attitudes and what are we believing in completely or what are we switching off and ignoring, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, and when we notice what those habits are, challenging them, questioning, and and uh, say, uh, bringing those in a way, um, shaking up, uh, being ready to shake up our own little world. Uh, uh, many years ago, Lumpur Sumedho gave a very very beautiful analogy about religious forms, and uh, he said it's like 
uh, we're, if we're in a prison cell, if we're locked up in prison, and the Buddha comes along and gives us the key to our cell and says, here's the key, all you have to do is put it in the lock, turn it, and let yourself out, and you are free. And so then, what we tend to do on this theme of, of, um, of uh, religious forms is we say, oh, my goodness, the Buddha gave me the key. Wow, this is so special, this is so precious. So we immediately put the key up on the shrine, hang it up on the wall, and start bowing to the key. And they, oh, this is, the Buddha gave me this, this is amazing, this is wonderful. The Buddha himself gave me the key. Wow, this is so precious, this is so good. And completely ignoring the fact that you're still locked in your prison cell. And that if you're going to use the key the way the Buddha intended, you put it in the lock and turn it and let yourself out. But instead, we, we put it up, you know, up on a shrine and bow to it. And I remember when, uh, when uh, Lumpur Sumedha gave that, that talk years ago, and I think it's included in the book Jitta Viveka, that sense of, that's exactly it. <laughs> that's exactly what we do. So I feel that's a, that in terms of wise reflection, that's a really good image to bear in mind. Like, am I taking the key, the teachings on the Four Noble Truths, keeping the precepts, following my routine of meditation, and, and uh, going along to the Buddhist group, running the Buddhist group, uh, you know, publishing books? <laughs> am I just worshipping the key, or am I actually using the key to, to open the door to, to get out of the prison cell? So that I, I was a particularly wanted to share. So in terms of, of uh, challenging um, the customs and, and traditions that we have. Uh, when Ajahn Chah came to, to the West for the first time, he, he's an extremely reflective and observant person. I'm sure most people here have read any of his books or been around these teachings for some time will, will realize that. So he, he had a, a, a very interesting time coming to the West because there's so many different customs and forms and practices. And that even though he was an extremely strict uh, sort of orthodox uh, Theravada monk, um, uh, he wasn't attached to the, the orthodoxies and the, the forms that he was used to. And so uh, when he went back to, to Thailand, one of, the, the, uh, one of the, the talks he gave to the community, and again, it's, I think it's this, that talk is included in the very first book of his teachings that were published in English, Bodhinyana, he said, you know, in the West, they, they relate to things very differently than we do in here in Thailand. So for us, in, us Thai people, the head is really sacred. So you, you'd never touch somebody on the head unless it was a, you know, your child or, or um, you know, someone comes to the monastery and says, please tap me on the head, Lung Po, and, um, as, a, as a blessing. He said, but really, uh, yeah, why, why, do we, why, why is it sacred? He said, in the West, you know, people might casually just sort of tap each other on the head or... They don't, they don't relate to their, they might kind of just muss somebody's hair and, or, or tap somebody on the head and, and, uh, and the other person doesn't get the slightest bit offended. He said, so I saw that happening a couple of times. I thought, wow, that's really different. It's, but then I thought, hey, but you know, the head really isn't that different from a cabbage. You know, it's kind of round and mostly hard. And, it's, and yeah, it's kind of, what's the difference between a, a, a person's head and a cabbage? And even reading that in English like 40 or 50 years after he gave that talk, you can almost hear the intake of breath in, in the sala at Wapapong. Cabbage, cabbage, how can you say that? It's like a galampi. You can't say that. Yeah. 
All right. With all due respect to to, uh, people, to Thai people, that uh, the cust- in Thailand, people from India can be looked down upon. Uh, there's there tends to be a, a, a again. I'm, I realize I'm being recorded and filmed, <laughs> but I would say it's not an exaggeration for um, when using a, a reference to somebody from India, Konkak. There's a kind of derogatory tone. Ajahn Kongrit is nodding gently, thank you very much. And so, when you say that the Buddha was Indian, again, which he was, yeah, he was from India, or Nepal at least, then if you say that sometimes to, to Thai people, with all due respect, there's sometimes there's a... Well, he was Indian, but there's a tone that... that is... That's part of the conditioning. Again, I'm British or uh, I'm a Euro mongrel, really, but um, I have a mixed ancestry from all over Europe. But um, uh, but I would say that I've noticed that when I when I when I casually mention, well, the Buddha was from India, you know, Buddha Ben Konkak. There's a uh, a certain movement can be discerned. Oh, that's probably not the right way to put it. <laughs> I could probably phrase that differently because it seems to be having an effect. But um, so uh, noticing that, and like Ajahn Chah is saying, the head's like a cabbage, um, just challenging those assumptions. Well, actually, the Buddha was born in Nepal and spent all his life in India, and he wasn't—he wasn't Chinese, he wasn't Thai, <laughs> you know, he wasn't Lao or Cambodian. He—that's where he was born, and that's where he lived. So, okay, look at that. Uh, if there is a reaction there, then. We we can take those kind of ways to challenge that. Similarly, another incident mentioning Ajahn Chah was when, um, uh, in the hot season, um, going out on the arms round in the morning, you go out at about five uh, five o'clock or half past five in the morning, still fairly cool, but things heat up very quickly. So by the time you're walking back to the monastery after a long arms round, it can get pretty sweaty. And in the forest monasteries, uh, Ajahn Chah was very strict about if uh, uh, the Sangha going out uh, in the morning, if there isn't a chance of rain, you wear, um, you wear all your robes, all, th- all three robes. So you have the, the thick double-layer robe on top of the, the, the single-layer robe. So in the hot season, uh, you're pretty sweaty by the time you, you're heading back to the monastery. So um, after you've left the village and walking through the, the, the countryside, through the, the rice fields, before you get to the monastery, sometimes it will, it will be considered quite okay to, to hitch your robe up over your shoulder so that a little bit of air could circulate uh, next to your skin, so to aerate the, the, uh, the, the body a little bit, to cool it off a bit. And so uh, that was considered, some people would consider that quite okay to hitch up your robe. You're outside the village, you're, you're, not, you're, in, you're not improperly dressed. Um, some of Ajahn Chah's disciples consider that completely shameless and that absolutely should never be done. You're only shameless monks hitch their robes up like that. So uh, Ajahn Chah knew that one of his disciples was coming to visit, come, came to stay with him for a few days, and he knew he was particularly keen on this rule of you know, good monks would never, ever, ever hitch their robe up when they're walking back from the village in the hot season. And Ajahn Chah took him out on the arms round and uh, they were walking back from the village together and Ajahn Chah casually hitched his rope up over his shoulder. I wasn't there, but I, I have heard that the story is told that the, 
cash is uh, accidentally on purpose forgetting that this, uh, his respected disciple had a, uh, had a sore spot with that. And so uh, just to see what he would do, okay, this technically, according to the, the Vinaya discipline, it's totally appropriate, but this monk uh, thought it was uh, too sloppy, too casual. And so, but here is his revered teacher doing exactly that sloppy, casual thing that, uh, that is my, my um, pet peeve, as they say. And uh, so Ajahn Chah was ready to challenge, okay, are you, who's going to win here? <laughs> the, the, the monk who doesn't like the robes being hitched up over your shoulder or the, uh, the uh, reverence for your, your beloved teacher? You know, where's it going to go? Just to, to challenge that, uh, that attachment. So in terms of breathing spirit into form, that challenging the... Uh, the structures that we create or what we call this is right, that's wrong, it should be this way, it shouldn't be that way, to, um, to notice where the mind is like, he's, Lumpur has hitched his robe up. How could he do that? Doesn't he know that I deeply disapprove of that? He probably does know. <laughs> so uh, it's helpful when those, um, those uh, attachments are, are challenged. Uh, in, the, in the Zen tradition in Japan, there, there was even one great Zen master, I'm not sure uh, what the name was, but uh, said, uh, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Which is a dramatic <laughs> way of, uh, of speaking. If you meet, that if you are, uh, if you are seeing that quality of, of goodness embodied in a particular form, then let go of it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a deliberately dramatic, overdramatic language. But uh, it's like if you're if you uh, if you're thinking that purity lies in the form, then you've got it wrong. So, and then that took shape in that, that particular expression. And again, there was an exchange between uh, Lumpur Chan, the, the young Ajahn Sumedho, when one day um, uh, the the young Ajahn Sumedho went to Ajahn Chah with a, a list of criticisms of things faults that he saw in Ajahn Chah's behavior, how he would uh, occasionally smoke cigarettes or he would chew betel nut and none of the other monks would smoke or none of the other monks were allowed to chew betel nut, but he, as the Ajahn, was setting a bad example because he would smoke cigarettes or he would, he would uh, chew, pe- chew betel nut. And he was the only one in the Sangha who chewed betel nut. Everyone else was for- forbidden. No one else was allowed to smoke and many and various other things. And after he delivered these, these, uh, this list of, of criticisms and, and complaints, then Ajahn Charles said, well, thank you very much, Sumaita. It's, uh, it's good that you bring these things to my attention. I hear what you say. I, I receive your criticism. But perhaps it's a good thing that I'm not perfect. Otherwise, you would be looking for the Buddha somewhere outside your own mind. So... Point and counterpoint. <laughs> so, and I would say that's the sort of Theravada version of kill the Buddha if you meet him. It's like that. Um, uh, don't look for the Buddha anywhere outside your own your own mind, your own awareness. So, in terms of, then of breathing spirit into form, you have a mindfulness of of what we're doing, paying attention to that, um, looking at. Um, uh, what we're attached to, what we what we approve of, what we disapprove of, what we think is good, what we think is bad, and then challenging the attachments that we have. So this is all ways of 
of making the forms come alive. Uh, again, in, in terms of, of the Buddha's teaching, uh, every form, every structure, every conditioned thing is seen as being intrinsically empty, a void of, of, of intrinsic substance. So there, there is, um, there, uh, there is no, uh, no thing really there. As uh, again, as Ajahn Chah put it, all the all the things of this world are merely conventions of our own creation. Having established them, we get lost in them, giving rise to all kinds of trouble and confusion. And when the Buddha spoke about the, the, the five groups of, of existence, the five aggregates of uh, the body or material form, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and discriminative consciousness, he used a set of images that, that show that the, the material form or feelings, uh, sensations, perceptions, thoughts, and emotions, and so on, they have a shape, but there's no essential substance there. So he said, Rupa, the body is like a lump of foam on the river. Um, it has a shape, but there's nothing solid there. Or the uh, sensations, Vedana, is like a water bubble when the rain falls on the pond and it creates a, a bubble. It's there, there's a shape for a moment, but then it's gone. Or that uh, perception, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching is like a, like a mirage, um, like a, a, a shimmering shape in the, that you see in the air in the desert. There's a shape and color, but no, no substance. Or the um, thoughts and feelings, emotions are like the, the stem of a, of a banana plant, like a leek or an onion. There's no hardwood, there's no core. There's just layer upon layer of leaves. You take the leaves away, there's no thing there. There's a stalk, but uh, when you take the leaves away, there's nothing but the leaves. And then uh, vinyana, sense consciousness, or just discriminative consciousness, is like a, uh, a conjuring trick. It seems as though there's magic being done, but it's a trick. It's not really magic. So there's a form, but no essence, no substance, is the way he describes it. And then in the dialogue with, uh, with Moggaraja, when he said, uh, um, when Moggaraja said, what's the best way... Uh, the most effective way to uh, to evade the king of death, to, to transcend death. The Buddha said, uh, if you see the world as empty, Moggaraja, then the, the, the king of death will not be able to find you. That if you, if you see that all things are, are empty, Sunya, then the, the uh, death, uh, the, the king of death uh, will not be able to find you. So that... Um, when, uh, when you bring all this together, I would say, and again, we'll have a period of time for some questions and discussion. Uh, reflecting on this, if we, we bring it together, we recognize that, that like the Buddha's images for the five khandhas, the five aggregates, um, there's a form, but there's no essence. Uh, that nature works in according to particular patterns, but there is no... Uh, there's no fundamental e essence or substance there. Like the, the two extremes, as in the teaching to Kachayana, um, all exists as one extreme, nothing exists as the other extreme. You know, everything is, uh, the world of things is absolutely real, it's one extreme. The, the world of things is, is, uh, is completely insignificant, is the other extreme. Um, so the, the, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle way, by the Majjhima Padipada. And that so that the things are causally related. That's the essence of the teaching of 
dependent origination. Things are idda pachayata, they, the world of things, they're empty, but the patterns of nature and the, the field of experience and the natural order, things function according to, uh, to certain laws and certain patterns. They are, they are empty, but they function according to the, the laws of nature. They are, they are uh, subject to the laws of conditionality. That's how the world of things works. That's why we use the world of forms, buildings, words, robes, uh, traditions of Theravada Buddhism. We know that this building doesn't really absolutely exist, but it's really useful. And it's designed to last for a thousand years, which isn't that long <laughs> in some respects. It can be seen as a long time. But it's a form, it's a structure. It's not intrinsically here, but it's... It, because of these fantastic oak pillars and the, and the good design of the architect, it's going to be here for a while. It has been here for, for 24 years, and it will probably stay here for a long time. So uh, it, is, it doesn't have an intrinsic absolute existence, but its form uh, holds together according to the laws of nature. So uh, when we remember that uh, any kind of structure, is there's a form but it, without any essence. Then we realize every word, every uh, tradition like bowing, chanting, meditation practices, the robes we wear, the, the teachings of the Pali Canon, these are all convenient fictions. They, are, they, are, they do have a structure. You have the words of the Pali Canon. We recite lots of it a lot of the time. <laughs> this building has a structure. These robes have a particular pattern. Yes, but... Um, uh, they are convenient fictions. And it's mysterious, is that when that uh, it's recognized that the, the words, the ideas, the customs, the forms are convenient fictions, there's nothing absolutely there, but they, they work according to the laws of nature, they, they relate uh, and function according to the laws of, of cause and effect, then... That's how spirit is breathed into form. The forms come alive when we recognize that there's, they're empty. <laughs> there is a form, but it's empty. And so it's, it's ironic, mysterious how that works. But it's when we recognize, oh, this isn't really a building. This isn't really a person. This isn't really a Sunday. But we call it Sunday. We call it a building. We call it a person. And the, the, the structures uh, function according to the, the laws of nature. If I, if I say the words, this isn't really a building, it doesn't just suddenly evaporate. Or I say, this isn't a person, it doesn't mean suddenly you know, I disappear into a rainbow. But, but it's, it's changing the perspective uh, on that. It's saying, oh yes, of course, this is just bricks and, uh, and oak beams and, and uh, uh, plaster and glass all came together and was put into this form. Here it is. But it's fluid. It's in a state of change. It's not absolutely permanently here. But it's convenient to have a Sunday afternoon talk in. And, uh, and so that when uh, we are able to recognize that and we, we bring that, that recognition uh, to the forefront of the mind with mindfulness, then we can really appreciate the, the, the structures that we use, the buildings that we have, the, 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 the uh, religious forms and the social forms that we use. They come alive by being remembered, by, by it being recollected that there's no thing absolutely there, but this is a really uh, convenient fiction that can be used for beneficial purposes. So I'll leave my reflections there for this afternoon. A1.
We have a uh, microphone back there, so it would be appreciated if people have questions, if you could uh, use, uh, use that so everyone can, uh, can hear. So anything anyone would like to ask or have clarified? Anything you'd like to challenge or question? <laughs> then please, uh, please go right ahead. Everyone is free of all doubts? Question mark. Yeah, if you can use the microphone, please. Do you switch it on here? Aha. So, uh, how can one establish one's own sort of, I'm not sure if ritual's a word, or schedule in the day as a layperson to encourage practice to meditation, etc. I find it's fine when I'm staying here or on a retreat, but at home it's just, uh, it, you know, but do it in a way that is all authentic and not robotic. Question. Thank you. you can. Yeah, I uh, I often uh, point out that I never even tried to be a lay Buddhist. So my experience of lay Buddhist practice was three weeks of living in Wat Pananachat before I became an Anagarika. So I never even tried to live as a Buddhist lay person. So I I can't I'm, I can't really speak from experience. So uh, walking into the monastery, then I realized, well, this is great. So um, I didn't leave. So I, I don't have personal experience of the kind of uh, um, uh, area that you're asking about, but I certainly have uh, talked with lots of people and given people advice and heard people's experience over many, many years uh, around this. So... Uh, it's a mixture of establishing a structure, but then also bearing in mind what's the intentionality behind that, so that uh, I will uh, say sit for at least uh, forty minutes every morning. You kind of establish that, okay, and then uh, you see that the intention behind doing that is to you know, start your way in a skillful fashion, uh, start your day in in, uh, in in as best way that you can, but then also noticing how you relate to that. How if a day comes where you're you don't manage to get your your meditation in, do, do you feel guilty? Or like, oh, Ajahn Amaro is going to find out I missed my meditation three times this week. Eek! I hope no one tells him. You know. <laughs> and they think, oh look at that, the mind is is creating a guilt trip over something that I've established for myself under my own initiative. Wow, look at that. So along the way, again, that the apamada, that heedfulness, looking at what the mind is doing with those structures. Um, and so that you're, you're both uh, applying the, the structure because of the particular benefits it has, but also... Um, 
looking at the, the, the habits of, of mind in relationship to that, or how, you know, you, you uh, like I'm describing my experience of going to Wat Pananachat, so it could be that I never even met a Buddhist monastic in my life, and then six months later I'm judging who wears their robes well and who doesn't wear their robes well. Like, <laughs> that's the right way, that's, that's a really sloppy way. And just to say, oh, look at that, 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 that judgment, uh, where's that arisen from, what's, what's behind that? So that you're you're both applying the the forms, and then you're keeping it fresh. So as you say, not becoming robotic about it. That there's not an intrinsic worth in in any particular practice, but certainly keeping the precepts seriously, uh, com- making a heartfelt commitment to the five precepts, and uh, and uh, then endeavoring to practice some kind of formal meditation every day. Uh, also practicing generosity where you can, uh, and not just material generosity, but uh, oftentimes um, uh, when talking about dana, uh, I have frequently make the point, nowadays the most valuable thing you can give is your attention to when you're, when you're with someone that you're not checking your phone. <laughs> You're, you're not uh, uh, waiting for it to be over so you can get on to the next thing, but you're, you're paying full attention to the, who you're with and really uh, 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 doing the, your best to attune to the, the situation and to that engagement. So dana isn't just a matter of making material offerings, but giving your, your sort of heartful attention as well. So that, uh, uh, then also with, with all of those things, so with the precepts, with meditation, with practice of dana, then um, the active uh, practice of reflection, like I was talking about wise reflection, looking at your attitudes, what may, when you feel cheerful, when you feel irritated, when you feel anxious, when you feel depressed, when you feel busy, when you feel sleepy, just to be noticing, oh look, that's what this experience is. And uh, again, if you if you read many of Lumpur Chah's teachings, over and over and over again, he's referring to how he's picking up a situation and saying, hey, look at that, you know, <laughs> why do I think that way? Or, or that uh, uh, the, uh, you could look at it like this, but also, you know, you could look at it like that. And that sense of active engagement with the present experience to to be... Um, looking at your own moods and attitudes, your own uh, habits, and so that the, by looking and questioning those and uh, and seeing that, then there's a um, we're less of a of a, a sort of a um, uh, a servant of our moods, and more the uh, the, the boss. You know, the, the the we're not just so sort of dragged around by. Feelings of excitement or anxiety or or dullness or whatever, but rather there's that quality of oh that's what's happening at the moment. There's this feeling of sleepiness or this this feeling of excitement or this feeling of regret or this feeling of of uh, say uh, energized engagement. That's what's here, and that uh, and with all of those then to look at the results, because that's it's not just a matter of engaging in the, the practice or the activity, but uh, 
looking at the results. Okay, if, you, if you're keeping the precepts, to notice, look at that. I haven't done anything today that I feel regret about. Wow. It's like noticing an empty room. Like, wow, this room has got no clutter in it. Ah. <laughs> like, so that looking at the results of, of the meditation, of the sila, of the reflection, and, and letting those results speak for themselves. That's a, I would say that that's... Because often uh, we can engage in a particular practice and we can get so busy with the methodology, like reflecting on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self, you get so busy, that you don't notice the effect of noticing. They're <laughs> so busy with the, the activity that they're not noticing the results of that activity. And again, it can be a, another aspect of habituation. With, with meditation practice, you get so used to doing the form of like mindfulness of breathing or using the reflections on anicca, dukkha, anatta, uh, change and uncertainty, unsatisfactoriness, not self, that you kind of forget, well, what's it all for in the first place? <laughs> and what it's for is to help the attitude change. So consciously noticing the effects of what we do, or like acts of generosity, that when you're engaged with someone and you're, you're having a conversation, part of you thinks, oh, when's this going to be over? You think, no, just stay, just listen, pay attention. And then looking at the results at the end, ah, oh, I feel really good that I didn't just make an excuse and take off. I, I feel there's a warmth in my heart at having just uh, uh, not followed that impulse and, and uh, just listened and, and spent the time that was necessary with that particular conversation. So we're informed directly by the results of the wholesome things that are done. That's a brief synopsis. So please, any any other questions? These these days are for you, it's not just for me to sit here and pontificate. Uh, can I ask something out of topic? <laughs> you can you can ask. I'm not sure if I'll respond. Uh, are there teaching in the sutras and Theravada tradition about falling to sleep and sleep practice? Falling asleep. Falling to sleep. Like are the practices that um, are taught in the sutras about? Uh, yeah, specific teaching before falling asleep. Yes, yeah. Um, the Buddha uh, is uh, described as he would lie down on his right side. It's called the lion's posture. The um, the lion posture. L i o n, not lying. Lie on the the animal. The lion's posture. He'd lie down on his right side with his um, with his hand under his right cheek. So in the, if you look at the reclining Buddha image in the, in the Chapel of Rest, if you, the, the glass Buddha image there, so that that's, shows you how the Buddha slept. So he lie down on his right side with his, um, his, uh, uh, with his, his right cheek on his right hand, and then 
as it says, setting in mind the time for awakening, he would mindfully fall asleep. That's it. <laughs> so one, uh, um, in, in addition, uh, there's not so much mentioned in the scriptures. One thing that's useful to do is to consciously relax the body. So, for example, if I'm lying down to, to rest, then I'll make a point of of um, not just uh, relaxing my mind, but bringing my attention down. Uh, often to my toes and notice if there's any tension in my legs or my feet and then it's and I do know it's kind of interesting I do notice that almost always my toes need to relax a little bit I don't know why but it's like that uh, so if you try to if you lie down and you try to rest while there's still a residual tension in the body then that works against the the sleep process but um if uh, the the body is as relaxed as possible, and then uh, the the uh, the mind um, can more easily go into a sleep state. Also, the other uh, thing that that uh, it, you do find in the scriptures, but it's not particularly associated with sleeping, but it's um, uh, in the the scriptures the the, the Buddha um, uh, establishes that if you if you're being really mindful then you don't assume that you have more than three or four seconds left to live. He says that uh, when he asks a group of, of the Sangha members, how do you establish mindfulness? One of them says, well, I consider that uh, human life isn't more than is about 70 years. And the Buddha said, no, you don't understand. And then 60, 50, 40, one year, half a year, one month, half a month, one week, one day, the time it takes to milk a cow, yeah, nope, nope, nope. And he goes down the last two. One says the time it takes to go from the the uh, the beginning to the end of an in breath, or the beginning to the end of an out breath. And the Buddha said, "You understand." And another one says the time it takes to swallow a mouthful of food that you have already chewed. So if you if you time it, that's about three or four seconds. So. Uh, as a as a practice, what I do when if I'm lying down to rest, mostly I will recollect this could be the last the last out breath, and there might be no more in breath. Is anything being held onto, or is is the mind ready for this to be the the last breath now, today? Even if I've got to give a talk this afternoon, got to. If this is the last out breath, I don't have to give the talk. <laughs> Easy. So that puts everything into perspective, the list of things to do. So relaxing the, the attitude in terms of letting go of everything and relaxing the body. And then uh, you, you sleep very easily. I make no guarantees, but that's... Uh, the, um, so the, the Buddha, he was quite okay with sleeping so like when uh, there's an occasion where Mara comes when it's the hot season the Buddha lies down to take a rest in the afternoon and Mara comes along and says you're supposed to be a fully enlightened Buddha what are you doing lying down to sleep in the middle of the day and the Buddha said you yeah, know it's the hot season it's the afternoon um, I uh, uh, lying down on my right side I mindfully said uh, uh, 
set in place the, the time for, for waking up and I mindfully go to sleep and I mindfully wake up. This is blameless. So that uh, even though the, the Buddha means the one who is awake, he, was, he, he did sleep, but he slept mindfully. Yes, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Hi. Do you think one should follow one spiritual path and why? Is that part of conforming or is it part of like following a specific form of life? religiously and spiritually? Um, depends what one means by you know, following. Um, so, uh, I'm a Theravada monk by profession, by profession <laughs> literally. Um, but uh, uh, I've always had an interest in a lot of other spiritual expressions and quite open to different ways of speaking about things. And so I've always been comfortable with different languaging, different forms of expression. And that uh, ever since childhood, it was kind of apparent to me that it, was, it couldn't be the case that there was one set of words or one set of customs that had the monopoly on, on reality. This didn't make sense from when I was quite small, being, being told that uh, you know, only... The, the, this particular group of people would be saved and that everybody else wasn't because of this particular set of beliefs or customs. And I thought, that doesn't make sense. I didn't know what did make sense, but that didn't make sense. And so I've always been comfortable with a variety of um, spiritual expressions and, and mixing different practices together. So other people, um, that just brings a lot of confusion and, and anxiety and doubt anxiety and so it just doesn't work for them and so that it's it's far more helpful to quite consciously leave everything else aside and just use one specific form so it's, it's kind of down to um, your personality type and uh, which is not uh, anything sort of better about or, or worse in one form or another but um, uh, you can't. It's not helpful to assume everyone else thinks the same way that you do. So that if you are quite comfortable, you, know, you would say listening to Hindu teachings or Sufi teachings or the uh, Native American teachings, you think yes, absolutely, that's 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 very well said. And and for somebody else, it might be like, what? But the Buddha didn't say that. That's how that that doesn't that doesn't fit. Well, that doesn't. I don't feel comfortable with that. Then okay, yeah. It's uh, the um, uh, we we start from where we are, so we we work with the conditions as we find them. So if you uh, if it's the case that your mind is is quite comfortable with a big variety of expressions, fine. And again, like I was saying um, to Jonathan, that uh, uh, look at the results of what you're doing. If you realise, oh, I've got. I've got my Sufis over here, I've got my Vedanta over here, I've got the Bhakti Yoga over here, I've got you know, Christian mysticism over here, I've got the, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the way of the white cloud over there. It's like, ah, I'm gone. You, know, you realize, okay, this is, this is confusing. Then look at that. You know, you might like the idea of, of, uh, of, of um, uh, absorbing it all, but, uh, it can be very 
that if you look at it and you realize the results is is confusing confusion and a lack of any real uh, 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 development or genuine progress within your own heart then okay this is this is getting too complicated so <laughs> let's let's make a choice here because like say if if you look at the teachings of of uh, Sri Ramana Maharshi, that, you know, many people have a lot of respect for, for him as an extraordinarily wise teacher. So he would teach um, uh, the um, uh, the kind of affirmation of self. You know, I am, I am that. You know, that the I am is the ultimate reality. I mean, it's a paraphrase, but so if then you say, well, how does the I am of Ramana Maharshi? How does that line up against the all dhammas are not self of the Buddha. Are they, are they opposed to each other? Are they different ways of saying the same thing? And so that if, if you, the mind takes something like that uh, and, and it results in confusion and doubt, then it's not helpful. But if, you, if, the, if the mind can take those and say, well, it's just like saying, you know, which direction is my finger pointing? From this side it's pointing to the left. From, from your side it's pointing to the right. Same finger. Um, Okay, and so if it's there isn't if the result is not so confusion or or, or doubt, then and it's actually more clarity. Then great, yeah. take it and use it. Yes, go ahead. Can you switch it on? Yeah. Okay. Better. Yeah. <laughs> so, seeing as you've been talking about structures and forms, I have a question about boundaries, um, and I don't think the question's fully formed, but it's it's kind of along the lines of, you know, when we need to hold boundaries, like emotional, psychological boundaries rather than physical boundaries, how can how can we do that in the kindest way? Yeah, good question. Um, in a monastery, we have lots of boundaries, <laughs> um, both not just physical, separate, you know, physical boundaries, but also um, so, uh, social, psychological boundaries. Um, and so that, that's fairly familiar territory, I would say, in our monastic training. And so um, uh, part of it is looking at intention. So. The, if there's a, a need for a, a, a particular boundary, saying you know, I'm available for this purpose or this this person to a certain amount, but I'm not available 24/7, or I'm not available, you know, for all, you know, all ways of, of helping or engaging. So if you're looking at the in, the intention and you see the intention is being kind to your own system, that the, in the you, you, knowing your own limits. And what's going to be a ben- what's going to be a benefit? Like if if you're not particularly fit right now, and you say, "Okay, I'm going to go for a thirty mile run," like it will, I'm just get, you know, I'm just making that up. But <laughs> go, yeah, go for a, go for a marathon. It's like, you know, if you're not prepared, it's going to be really hard, hard on the system. It's going to be really damaging because you're not. That's not that's beyond the boundary that you're capable of. So knowing your own capacity and um, 
the uh, uh, so making boundaries based on a kindness towards your own system is not you know it's not because you're hard-hearted or you don't care it's like i can i can run for a mile but i can't run for 30 miles yeah that's <laughs> that's 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 beyond what i'm capable of and if i try to it's going to be is injurious for me and and you know everything everyone's going to lose so part of it is knowing your intention and then also knowing your own limitations also just trusting um that uh, even if someone says you know you've you've got to help me or you've got you know you, you used to be so available you're not available anymore you hate me it's like well i'm just making that up you know but that kind of thing where if you're clear within yourself like well no it's not because i hate you it's because i've only got so many hours in the day <laughs> and i've got other other things i have to be taken care of and i do care about you uh, i i am very happy to help you but uh, I, I can't I can't take away your your difficulties I can't I can't take away your suffering if I could I would but I can't I can only do so much and they say well if you cared you'd do more again I'm just making that up well you might you're you're welcome to think that <laughs> but that's your business uh, I from my own side I I feel I'm doing what I can and um, if I could do more I would do more but this is as much as I can manage and it's, it's difficult, to, um, we're a very idealistic culture. And should is usually in sort of 72 point capitals. You know, you should be this way, you shouldn't be that way, you should do more and so on. But if we, if we step back from that, how I should be, uh, from an idealistic position, and we take more the practicalities of, of um, how things are, working with our own capacities our own limitations and then you're setting boundaries according to to that um, rather than setting boundaries according to an idealistic how if i was a perfect person if i <laughs> then I, I i should be able to do this and i should be able to be like that they, well let's start from where you are rather than where you, sh you should be or the the idealistic version of yourself so like a a, a buddha image is an ideal so that, that that image never gets sore knees. His back never hurts, never has to go to the bathroom, never has to eat or breathe. He's been sitting there since 1999, perfectly composed, because he's an ideal. It's not a it's not a living, breathing being. So even the Buddha himself had chronic back pain when he was when he was a, a, an old man. And there's quite a number of suttas that. Where he uh, he's giving a dhamma talk and he'll say he'll turn to Mahakachana or Ananda or Sariputra and say, uh, Kachana, my back is paining me. The assembly is still awake. You, uh, please uh, carry on giving them a dhamma talk. I'm going to go and stretch my back. And uh, the, so he would uh, the the actual living Buddha <laughs> would take steps to relieve his back pain. Um, this Buddha image doesn't have to. Because it's an ideal, but uh, because our culture is quite uh, tends to put the ideal, the ideal me at the centre, and then the 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 other me, the kind of the the actual me who's got uh, limitations of energy and and uh, emotional capacity and so on, that's sort of left off at the edges. So switch the position and so that 
the the actuality of how we are and, and what our what our capacities are and what our limitations are have that at the center and have the ideal off at the edges so that uh, that yeah it's a, it's a, and we have the buddha image there in a high position it's a guiding principle but it's an ideal it's not alive <laughs> it's a it's a, a kind of a model and uh, an example but it's um the actual humans who come and spend time here in the temple and work with our minds this is what the temple is for that's what the shrine is for it's for for us starting from where we are uh, it's not the, the temple isn't for the for the for the buddha image <laughs> it's for the people and so um i am not sure if that's responding to all of your your questions but uh, uh i grew up suffering a lot from trying to make everybody happy all of the time i'm a compulsive people pleaser i have been and so if somebody if i was trying to help someone and they were still unhappy i would make it clear that it was my fault yeah they're still not happy it's because i haven't done enough therefore their unhappiness is my fault and it took me a long long time to to come to that sort of different perspective of like well no if i could just take take away their dukkha their suffering i would but i can only do so much and it's not because i don't care but this is this is what i can manage and so uh if you if we don't let go of uh, recognize our own limitations then you got two suffering beings instead of one Not yet. There's a switch on the side. Uh, if, if you, there we are. Now we're good. If you slide the switch up. There we are. Yeah. Hi. Um, thanks for the talk. And, uh, thanks for answering questions. I was wondering... Um, Sometimes I have difficulties with uh, forms if I can't find the meaning uh, behind them, um, or maybe outdated forms. So, for example, we have the precept uh, not sleeping on high or luxurious beds, uh, which we still speak out when we take the eight precepts, but I feel like it's not conforming to the current reality. And then there's also the um, eating at inappropriate times, uh, but we can for example, have chocolate or cheese outside of those times. And this causes some friction uh, for me. So I wonder how you uh, interpret these uh, rules. And also, if it might be that some rules are outdated or how to deal with outdated forms in general. Yes, well, uh, uh, you're not the first person to ask these questions. So the yeah the the wording of uh, the eight precepts comes sort of directly from the the scriptures, and um, the uh, the say the high and luxurious um, beds. It would be that that would um, the the 
So the meaning behind that, or the, the implication behind that, is that the, there's a um, uh, an effort to maximize the amount of time sleeping, so that uh, that uh, the the spirit of that particular rule is to have a a simple sleeping place that's not particularly sort of cozy or that you can sort of wrap yourself up and disappear into into sleep. So the spirit of that is encouraging wakefulness. And so that the... Um, uh, I don't think any of the beds at Amravati are high or luxurious. Well, maybe high-ish for some of them, but uh, not particularly luxurious. So the, that, the, the spirit behind it is that quality of, of encouraging wakefulness. And so, with regards to food, not eating at inappropriate times, then the um, uh, the spirit behind that is simplicity with with regards to to food. So it's rather like uh, if you if you drive a car. I mean, nowadays um, there's a lot of electric cars. But so whether you have a, a diesel car or a petrol car or electric car, you know, have you ever gone to a a petrol station? Um, just because you felt like filling up, or have you ever gone to recharge your car just because you think, oh, "Ooh, I feel like a recharge"? Yeah, like no, we don't think like that. We don't. No, no one goes to the petrol station because they, they, um, they want the the kind of the thrill of filling up their car. I would presume. I'm kind of guessing, but I, I would say it's pretty rare. Like, oh, look, a petrol station. Let's stop there. And you're not going for a, for the snacks. You're going for the petrol. It's like, we don't think that way. Because we get, you know, the snacks, maybe, or the bathroom. We'll be, oh, look, <laughs> it's a petrol station. But the, the act of putting petrol into the car or diesel or putting an electrical charge, that's not particularly appealing or exciting. But you need it for the vehicle to go places. So that precept, the, the sixth precept, is encouraging simplicity and practicality in relationship to nourishment. So just eating uh, food in one part of the, of the day. And so that then that is like um, relating to food, like uh, time to fill up, the, fill up the vehicle. So we go along with our bowl. It's just like going to the petrol station. You fill up your bowl with your petrol and then consume your fuel and then you're good to go for the rest of the day. So that the intention is to have a, a very uncomplicated and impartial attitude towards food. And so that the reflection, um, I was, uh, um, uh, I ha we haven't done it recently, but uh, in, the, in the chanting, I was actually I was thinking about doing it this morning, coincidentally. <laughs> but the, uh, the reflection on the four requisites, uh, on, on uh, uh, food, clothing, um, shelter and medicine, then the, the reflection on consuming food is uh, not for fun, not for pleasure, not for fattening, not for beautification, only for the maintenance and nourishment of this body, for keeping it healthy, for helping with a holy life. That's why you go to the petrol station, <laughs> just to, to fill up the vehicle so the vehicle can go where it needs to go. So relating to, to nourishment on a very sort of simple, practical level. So things like... Uh, like uh, Dark chocolate and uh, and and sugar and such like tea. Yeah. <laughs> the 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 um, uh, the intention behind that is that recognizing that uh, along with more medical medicines like insulin or 
or paracetamol or whatever, that, that then t uh, tonics are there to, to help um, give a bit of energy during the, the, the day or to, if, if people can't um, find it difficult to consume enough fuel in the morning uh, just to make them comfortable through all the whole of the, the rest of the day and the night, then there are things that are uh, allowable that can help sort of keep the, keep the engine running if your tank is only so big and that uh, can help to keep the system in a healthy state. So it's a balancing act. Um, uh, the idea is that those, those tonics are, are uh, say, available if they're, if, they're, if they're needed, if they're around, you can make use of them, or you, uh, you can leave them aside, depending on what your physical needs are. But um, from very early, uh, in the earliest days of Amravati, things were, were pretty austere here. That um, it was uh, pretty, you know, not to say back in the old days it was really tough, but it was kind of, uh, uh, it was a pretty bleak place. I mean, it's quite a very different character now, but when people came to visit in the 80s, it was often they thought this was a converted prison camp or a, an army base, these sort of long, wooden huts and there's, there's a, where the cloister is now there was like an open courtyard and people would say is this a army camp? is this a prison? there was a water tower that looked like a gun emplacement and uh, it didn't look much like a Buddhist monastery and the buildings were all uninsulated and pretty bleak and and, the, and in the winter time there wasn't that um, there's quite often you know, very few visitors and such like so um, it, it was uh, early on, because we're, we're kind of the forest tradition, we're the sort of uh, hardcore kind of uh, can you know, can endure, tough it out. The kind of the endurance facu faculty is very highly promoted in our group, the oton in Thai language, and so that's very much the spirit of of the um, of the forest tradition. And when Amaravati opened up, Ajahn Sumedha was really sort of pushing that. You know, Come on, let's just, just do it. So, one of the, the 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 winter retreat that we had, I think it was nineteen beginning of nineteen eighty six. Uh, we began the morning puja at three o'clock every day, and we'd finish the evening sitting at eleven every night. And uh, so it was three in the morning to eleven at night every day for the whole the whole winter retreat. And uh, it was a really cold winter, and there was some and what my my what's the my fish pond. No, <laughs> it was it was frozen, uh, and there were some monks who were breaking the ice and jumping in the fish pond. Uh, you know, before the uh, the three o'clock bell. So it was kind of death or glory. <laughs> it was the kind of ethic of the time. But then it was really interesting because at the end of that retreat, Ajahn Sumedha realized. This isn't a very good result because people were, were trying to sort of join in with that kind of can-do spirit, but for so he saw for quite a lot of the community they were just. It was really like you know we can't. This is not sustainable. This is this is kind of crazy. Yes, there's a sort of vigorous spirit to it, but physically this is beyond what a lot of people can do. And that uh, it's that same era. I remember one time. Uh, quite a number of us went to go and donate blood in Berkhamsted. And I think out of about 15 of us, they only accepted like two people. All the rest of us were anemic. 
<laughs> you haven't got enough enough iron in your blood. Yeah. We can't we can't take your blood. So it's like okay. So uh, he realized, okay, I think we need to change our tactics here. So he became quite um, a lot more liberal with things like uh, like cheese and and uh, making. Um, uh, uh, things that were allowable for, uh, available for people, because he thought, yeah, this is kind of uh, okay for if you're in the U.S. Marines, but <laughs> this is this is not workable and it's it's not helpful. So he he quite consciously adapted the system to be a, a lot more uh, accommodating for people of different physical capacities, which um, so you know for the for the sort of the the testosterone-laden young males it was like yeah right this death or glory is this is that's the way but um for, for the large majority of the community it was not that kind of austerity wasn't helpful so he quite deliberately uh, opened things up a bit more on that score so that people could could live here and then trusting that people they're not here just to spend their lives lying around and eating sweets <laughs> we're here to end suffering so that, uh, and just trusting people's good intentions and their, their, their and working things on an, on an honor system, and that uh, letting people use their own wisdom, learning their own limits, their own their own capacities, their own needs. So I see we've gone past the uh, the hour of four. So let's draw things to a close. So next week, Ajahn Sundra will be offering reflections on on uh, don't cling, let it go, on non-clinging. So that'll be the, the theme for next week. So go well. <laughs>